Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring alchemy and psychology. My guest is Robert Bosnack, who is a Jungian psychoanalyst with 40 years of clinical experience. He graduated from the Carl Jung Institute in Zurich in 1977. He is author of A Little Course in Dreams, Embodiment, Creative Imagination in Medicine, Art, and Travel. Christopher's Dreams, Dreaming and Living with AIDS, Tracks in the Wilderness of Dreaming, and Red Sulphur, an alchemical novel in four volumes. Robert is based in Australia today, so now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Robert. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you very much for having me. We're going to be talking about psychology and alchemy, and it's a topic that has fascinated me for a long time. Of course, I'm uh, aware of Jung's work in this field, but at the same time, I've always been puzzled. Uh, it's never quite come together for me why alchemy would have any relationship at all to depth psychology. Well, uh, Jung was very interested in it also because it is a thought system, a metaphor system that uh, went out of fashion about 400 years ago. And so um, he wanted to take an archimedical point outside of time so that he could from there on look at our time. And the interesting thing about alchemy is, and this is his notion, and I partially agree with that, is that um, since we didn't know anything about matter at that time, or very, very little, um, most of what we were seeing in alchemy and what the alchemists were seeing was a form of embodied imagination that became my field. My field became embodied imagination. So it was the imagination as it embodied itself through alchemy. So he found, and um, I've found since because I've been working on alchemy now for over 50 years, um, uh, that these alchemical processes are very similar to depth psychological processes because they were seeing imagination. And because they were seeing and looking at imagination, they were looking at what we now call unconscious processes. And that's why alchemy became really very relevant. Well, that makes sense. I'm uh, very glad you've clarified that. Uh, at the same time, I have the impression from reading in particular the end notes to your four-volume novel, Red Sulphur, where you go into the history of alchemy and alchemical terms and the many historical figures who were involved, that there's a sense in which you seem to be take, taking alchemy seriously, that somehow it seems as if some of the ancient alchemists actually were capable of transmuting lead or other base metals into gold. 
I was trained at the Jung Institute in Zurich, so I was very much a follower of the thoughts of Jung. And Jung would always go from the perspective that, no, this was not possible. It was not possible to actually literally transmute lead into gold. It was a refinement. It was like a psychological refinement process in which the material got refined, but also the alchemist got refined. And then I stumbled upon... Um, a letter by Spinoza, Benedict Spinoza, who was probably one of the greatest um, philosophers of the second millennium. And he wrote that he had verified a transmutation from lead into gold in The Hague in 1666. And um, it was also verified by the mint, mint master of the Netherlands. And you have to see that at that moment, Holland, the province of Holland, was one of the most powerful um, countries in the world. And they were big traders. So they had a lot to do with finding out whether gold is real or not. So the mint master of the Netherlands, Mr. Pirellius, was no fool. And he verified that this transmutation had happened, and several other people did. Um, also, the uh, the man who did all the assays. And so I became really interested, and I said, well, let's for a moment take as if this were possible. I do not know. So the only way I can explore this is through fiction. And that became my novel series, Red Sulfur, in which I explain the world of alchemy. I describe the world of alchemy of the world of the alchemists, what kind of people they were, what their love life was like, all that kind of stuff. Because in alchemy, the interesting thing was that actually the relationship between the alchemist and the material was a love affair. They had a love affair with the materials, and through the heat of their love, the materials would transform. So that I described in my novel series. Well, do you think that the alchemists of the 17th century, 16th century, and uh, in that era, conceived of themselves as engaging in a spiritual practice, or did they think of themselves as scientists? The word scientist was invented as the followers of Galileo. So that was very recent. That was in 1600. And um, the founder of chemistry, Robert Boyle, was an alchemist. Um, the, um, the great Isaac Newton was an alchemist. And so these people who were exploring natural phenomena were all alchemists. Now, I don't think that they were seeing it as a spiritual discipline. I think that came more with the Rosicrucians in the beginning of the 17th century, where there became a split between the working on the material and the spiritual work. But that was not at all the notion of the alchemist. The alchemists were working on the materials. They were working on making medicines because most of these guys mainly men, some women, most of these people were um, were physicians. So they were very interested in developing, um, in developing medicine. One of the great alchemists, of course, was Paracelsus. And Paracelsus was a physician, and he was looking after, and he found many, many medicines by way of this alchemy. So, no, it was very physical. I gather that the alchemists... Uh were just as interested in a, a panacea, cure for all ills, as they were in yes. converting lead into gold. 
Yes, well, I described that in Red Sulphur, that the, the panacea is the notion that there is one thing that cures everything. And um, I've become very interested in that because I think it is something, um, you have to see that before, I think, the um, I would say the early 19th century, late 18th century, most medicine that were being used were actually placebo. Um, so it was that it worked because people believed, had faith in that it would work. And it was delivered by people they had faith in. And so this faith was um, was a healing effect. So I think that the panacea actually is um, the placebo effect, which is the triggering of the self-healing response. And I think that they were into trying to trigger the self-healing response, even though they didn't know, because they thought that it was in the in the medicine that they were delivering, but actually it was a triggering of the self-healing response. And I think that's the panacea. And it's being studied now a lot. The, the placebo effect has great studies going on at the moment. Well, the placebo effect is uh, one of the very best examples that I think we have of the power of the mind over over the body and perhaps over things external to the body. Well, yes, if you split um, mind and body, um, I think my, from my perspective, mind and body are the same under different uh, points of view, under different aspects. They're aspects of the same. Um, so that if you uh, profoundly influence soul or the mind, whatever you want to call it, but if you profoundly influence that, you get embodied effects. And we know, for instance, that emotions are very strongly embodied and um, they um, mostly run below the cortex. They, they run in the limbic system and they go first to the body before we are aware of them. Well, this emphasis on, on the body is, is very important. Certainly, it would be a mistake uh, to deny the body. On the, on the other hand, I, my background is in parapsychology. Uh, so, I'm yes, very yes. interested in, in the operations of the human mind independent of the brain, independent of, of the body. And the interesting thing, Robert... Uh, I recalled when you mentioned you had worked with James Hillman. I met the man many years ago, uh, back in the 1970s, and I had a conversation with him about Jung and his interest in the paranormal, particularly through his theory of synchronicity, uh, which is of great interest to parapsychologists. And as I recall, James Hillman made a point of saying, no, there's nothing paranormal at all in, in Jung. It's really straight material science. It seemed to be uh, what he was trying to convey. He seemed to be, I guess I might even use the word afraid of associating depth psychology with the paranormal. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that um, uh, when um, uh, when Jung began, uh, he was um, his first studies. He did his dissertation on parapsychology. His first dissertation was on spiritism. He had um, a, a niece or a cousin um, who was uh, a medium, and so he studied media and. Um, 
then he later moved this very much closer to the complex theory so that these were complexes of the unconscious imagination that were presenting themselves to the medium. Uh, but in the beginning, he was very interested in it. And then he began to keep himself uh, away from it, from the English um, the parapsychologists like Myers. And, and he, he kept himself further away from it. Um, I myself um, believe that uh, that the spirit is a fully embodied presence, but I don't know what it is beyond that. Um, I don't know whether uh, when, for instance, we dream, I do not know whether we are picking up dreaming and we enter into a world of dreaming or whether the dreaming is created in the mind that perceives it. I do not know that. So I am, uh, I am, I call myself a radical agnostic. I have no idea about ultimate things. I have no idea. So if you are interested in parapsychology, that is something that interests me. Your interest in parapsychology interests me. Whether it's true or not, I do not know. In the same way as when I worked with people who had been abducted in um, UFOs. I do not know. I stay with the not knowing, and then I start from there. Well, I think that's a healthy attitude. It sounds like uh, what I might call open-minded, authentic skepticism. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, uh, with and, regard uh, to alchemy, I, I gather that one of the great strengths of a, a psychological approach to alchemy is that the language of alchemy is very physical, it's very embodied, uh, and it's also quite fresh. It, they are very uh, apt metaphors for other psychological processes that might otherwise seem too abstract. Yes, and uh, um, automatically the psychoanalysts from the beginning have used the word, for instance, the word that, you, that Freud used, uh, sublimation. Sublimation, which he um, is talking about how a sexual process becomes a spiritual process, uh, moves out of the physical, becomes spiritual so that people don't have to directly deal with their sexuality and it moves into spirituality. He calls that fabric, uh, he calls that, um, uh, the process of where it moves up, it's, it uh, becomes sublime. That is actually an alchemical term. The alchemical term is that um, you begin to uh, cook something and then um, the steam begins to rise and it goes to the top of the vessel. And as it goes to the top of the vessel, it sublimates. So, um, in the lower part of the vessel, what remains is the dark stuff, the heavy stuff, and it moves up and it sublimates in the top of the vessel. Now, you can see this in psychological processes. You can see that in people, for instance, they're depressed and suddenly they get, uh, they feel better and they feel stronger and then they disidentify completely from that stuff that is going down below, that dark, heavy stuff below, and they completely go into this sublimated stuff up top. And what the alchemists then say, the great danger is that if you remove the top of the vessel, then it all goes out and you feel fantastic for a moment. But what remains is this heavy, dispirited stuff at the bottom of the vessel. Now, that's a psychological process if I've ever heard one. It, it reminds me of the notion of the spiritual bypass that... Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. 
Mm-hmm. Can get so so involved in the uh, higher realms of spirituality that they're not paying attention yeah. to the, their guts, their bread and butter uh, psychological issues. Yes, and and they forget to pay the taxes, and they forget to take care of their family, and yeah, no, there's a whole. Um, there's a whole problematic there that the alchemists were already talking about, but they were talking about it in a physical way. And that's, as you say, that's what I like so much about them. Well, there are many other metaphors that that one finds in alchemy. Of course, I think the major metaphor, and it's really the theme, I believe, of your four-volume novel, is the idea of the Philosopher's Stone. The notion of the Philosopher's Stone is that... Um, at the core of the atom, because many of the alchemists were atomists as well, uh, the atom theory came from Democritus in before before Christ, and so um, uh, so many of the alchemists were atomists, but they saw at the core of the atom the word uh, atomos means unsplittable; you can't split it. Um, uh, at the core of that, um, there was uh, a spark. There was not like what we have at the core of the atom is um, energy, like ESMC squared. We have this notion that enormous energies are at the, in the nucleus, and if you split it, it all comes out, nuclear fusion or fission. Um, and um, the, for, But for the alchemist, um, at the core of the atom lay the spark of creativity. The, the notion was that the world was created by divine creation, and in this divine creation was pure creativity, and it was shattered and all over the cosmos. But the elements still had it at their core. So, uh, and the most concentrated form of it was in the metals, because the metals were part of the planets. The notion was that um, the planets that are the in-between, the, the word planetos means wanderer, that they were the wanderers across the firmament. And so they were in between eternity and temporality. And so they had a lot of cosmic energy and they planted their seeds in the earth. So Venus planted copper, the sun planted gold, the earth, um, the moon planted silver, etc., etc. And so as the alchemists worked the metals, they worked to extract from the core of the metals the creative force. And then they would congeal that and they would, would dissolve it and congeal it. That's what they do all the time. They always talk about uh, coagulate and dissolve. And then in the end, they would have a coagulation of all the creative force. And that coagulation of all creative force, that was called the Philosopher's Stone or red sulfur. It was a very active, uh, very active substance, red sulfur, that could transform anything. From It had complete freedom to transform anything into anything. Well, I guess this is the point at which, uh, and we can see it historically, that alchemy, uh, going back to ancient times, probably back to ancient Egypt, became fused with other doctrines like astrology and uh, Kabbalah. Well, yes, um, uh, I think Kabbalah came later, but um, in the beginning, alchemy uh, comes from uh, the uh, practice of mummification, 
mummification was the search for eternity of the body. So that is the notion. The notion of creating eternal life is part of alchemy from the beginning. It was a part of dying, of uh, not dying of death, but dying of cloth. And um, it was part of metallurgy. And then it was, it had a strong influence from Sumeria, um, from uh, astrology. And that together became alchemy in the beginning of our era. And then later on, um, uh, Kabbalism is, uh, comes in later on. And all these mystical streams find their way towards alchemy, where, where as the alchemist was working with it, um, all these forces started to come in. Lurianic Kabbalah came in, uh, the notion of the Tsimtsum, the notion that, um, that, uh, the God has, has left his sparks in the world and we have to gather it in. All those notions became part of alchemy. In fact, many people would say that alchemy is central to what is sometimes defined as the Western esoteric tradition or hermeticism. I think that uh, I also always see alchemy as um, the European Aboriginal tradition. It is actually coming from the core of uh, Western thought. And um, you can still see it in medicine, for instance, in the beginning of medicine, dreams were very important. And uh, dreaming was central to the healing process. And um, so I think that um, they were very much interested in things that were not directly accessible. And so um, the in the healing sanctuaries, for instance, people would sleep in the abaton. And the abaton, that's where the dreams would come. And the, the abaton means that which is not directly accessible. So they would sleep in a place to get in touch with the not directly accessible. And so there was a great interest in what was not directly accessible. And um, we have more or less lost that interest. We in in science are interested in what is accessible, not to the inaccessible. Yes, the the inaccessible in matter, but we are not interested in other principles because we have become materialists. Isn't there also a relationship between uh, the ancient name for Egypt, which I I believe was Cam, to to the name alchemy? Yes, I think so. And I think that Cam was black. And so, um, yes, it was uh, strongly the, 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 I think the name Cam of, of Egypt was directly related to alchemy and later to chemistry. As I recall, it may have something to do with the black soil that was carried by the Nile. That could very well be. But I think it it has this notion of black. And black is a very important color in alchemy. It's called nigredo, black. And it's the black of night, that kind of black. Um, and um, so every process in alchemy has to go through blackness. It has to go, and blackness is the state of, um, it's non-racial blackness. It's the blackness of night. It has to go through the blackness of things falling apart. It has to go through the blackness of dread. It has to go through the blackness of not knowing. It has to go through the blackness of everything uh, being 
in a state of warfare. Um, that is all part of the spirit of the night, the blackness. And so black chem is very important in alchemy. In, f in fact, I gather all the colors are very important. Which oh, absolutely. Yes, there's a... Mm -hmm. The idea of color itself is, is unique because, uh, well, for example, you mentioned Galileo. He sort of banished color from science. It, it was relegated to a, a psychological property in the mind that uh, we all experience color, but uh, all, the best that science can do is measure wavelengths. That then left the culture very much until Goethe brought it back um, in the 19th century. Um, that colors have qualities. In alchemy, colors are qualities. Uh, in, um, in Newtonian physics, uh, colors are accidental. Um, they are wavelengths, as you say. The colors themselves are not essential. It is the wavelength that is, because everything is waves. And, um, but for the alchemists, it was very different. They had a color scheme, and um, if you look at it narratively, like in a single narrative, it would be a movement through um, the springtime of green, through the black of falling apart, into the blues of sadness, into the light blue of the spark, into the silver of the reflection of the spark, into the yellow of the fermentation, and out of the fermentation came the red, the red sulfur, which is the, the solar power to bring all this into the world. So that was a, that was a, a, a color scheme in alchemy, and these were essentials. Colors were essentials, and then after Galileo, they, be, they became accidents. Well, one of the important points uh, in your work, I know, is the idea that alchemy comes to us from a time in which science itself was considered participatory. The, the, the so-called objective universe separate from the scientist is, is a more modern way of looking at things. That's not how the alchemists saw things. No. Um, the, the notion of objectivity and of the object was codified, of course, by Descartes in uh, around 1640. Uh, before that, the notion was that the alchemist was participating in the presence of the metals. The metals were their own presences because for, for alchemy, everything is biology. There's only life forms. Uh, metals were a particular life form. And um, the alchemist could participate in the life form of, for instance, uh, iron and feel the power of iron, feel the martial element of iron, feel Mars in the iron, or it could participate in Venus, which is in copper, which is the beauty and the love. The alchemist could partake in the moods of the metals. And um, so it was that it was a dialogue. It was a communication. It was not a subject working on an object, which science became. It was a practitioner participating in the life forms that they were working with. And it was, um, it was mutuality. So there was mutuality between the alchemist and what the alchemist was working with. Another aspect of alchemy that uh, I think is very important uh, is the notion of the, uh, I think it's sometimes called the alchemical marriage or the union of opposites. 
Yes, um, Jung was very interested in that. He his his masterpiece was called Mysterium Conjunctionis. It was a two volume book about the mystical marriage. The mystical marriage is the marriage between silver and gold, um, between the sun gold and the moon silver. Uh, the marriage between um, uh, between we could understand that now as. Um, um, reflective action, action that carries its own reflection in it. Um, so it's not just action. Most of life is just action. People are just acting, which has no reflection in it. But in alchemy, what the notion was that this in this mystical marriage, there was this reflection, this deep reflection that was going on on um, uh, uh, what the world is like and how the world affects us. And this deep reflection would sink into the body. That was the fermentation, the yellow. And through the yellow came the 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 gold of action and you would create an act. An act would come into being. And um, to me, always the greatest example of that in politics is um, Gandhi's salt march, where Gandhi uh, was in a state of deep reflection. Out of that came the image of salt. And uh, because the, the British had a monopoly on salt, so he would go and pick up salt and start selling it and thereby do something that was a civil, civil disobedience. But he came at it out of a deep reflection and then it turned into this march, which was an act. And that is the moment when deep reflection and action come together in an act. And that is a red sulfur act. And so the alchemists were very interested in that moment where deep reflection and action come together and create something that is truly new. Now, if I remember the salt march correctly, uh, Gandhi led a large procession of his followers to the ocean, I, I believe it was, where the, they could find the salt. And the British were there with clubs and, uh, and they were literally just clobbering these people right over the head, uh, beating them up terribly. And, but they kept marching. They kept going. They'd pick each other up and the next wave would come through. They didn't let this yeah, terrible yeah, yeah. beating stop them. And it was that action that changed the consciousness, I think, of the British public in terms of their colonization Absolutely. of uh, the Indian subcontinent. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, this was an act. This was, a, this was an act where deep reflection, because they were following Gandhi in his deep reflective moment of, we're going to salt. We are the salt of the earth. Earth. It, the, 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 the metaphor of salt is so profound that everybody gets it. Everybody understands that everybody needs salt and that the state cannot have a monopoly on salt. So we're going after the salt. So that's an action. That is an act with a deep, profound image in it. And that image and action together um, was the end of the British Empire. Not, not only that, it was the demonstration that nonviolent methods can uh, result in enormous political change. Yes, but the, 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 the methods has to have to be like Martin Luther King is talking about. They have to have a dream in it. 
They have to have an image in it. The salt march had an image in it. Martin Luther King is talking, I have a dream. He's not saying I have a hope. He has a dream. It is a dream where the image is so potent and so forceful that people can enter into the dream and the dream can be brought into the world. That is the marriage between moon and sun, sun and moon. That is the mystical marriage. And I find it also interesting that Gandhi and his followers were perfectly willing to to be beaten, uh, bloodied in uh, the pursuit of this dream. Yes, and um, and so were, was the civil rights movement in the United States. So yes, I think that these images, um, these dreams, give incredible power to people because it works directly on the spirit. So these people were so strongly spirited that the foul counter spirit couldn't um, harm them. They could only harm the body, but they couldn't harm that spirit. And so that's very much that's very much the notion of the mystical marriage, where the spirit can come into the body. It's a beautiful example of what I would have to call true alchemy. I, I never thought of Gandhi as an alchemist, but there you have As He was one of the great alchemists. Gandhi was one of the great alchemists of all time, yeah. That is quite a story. Another aspect mm -hmm. of alchemy, which I gather is, is very important, and you see it in many religious and spiritual traditions, is the notion of purification. Mm. Yeah, that's very important. Um, the idea is that everything <clears throat> already exists in its raw form. Um, there are some some people who are studying the placebo effect, and basically they say in its raw, raw form, all the medicines that we're taking are already in the body. The body is a gigantic pharmacy. Everything's there. Um, so the purification process is to... Um, first of all, um, the alchemist says that everything exists in a state of encrustation. Everything is encrusted. So first you have to dissolve the crust. And in this dissolution of the crust, the exterior becomes supple again. Everything becomes supple and begins to flow. And then you can uh, remove everything that is superfluous. So the purification is the removal of that which is superfluous, that which is non-essential. Recognize that in, in our lives? Yeah. And so, um, so the non-essential is being removed. And as the non-essential is being removed, the essential remains. And that is the purification. And as as everything is essentialized, it gets much more power, it gets much more spirit, it becomes more potent, and it becomes more psychoactive in the same time. So that is basically the notion of purification. It's very important in alchemy. And it, it is related to big stench and all that kind of stuff because, yeah, the, the superfluous stinks. That's very interesting. Uh, well, now going back to uh, the origins of alchemy. You mentioned Robert Boyle, and you, and you mentioned also Spinoza, that Spinoza attested that he had witnessed a, a trans, for, transmutation. No, 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 no. Yeah. He, he verified. 
the transmutation. He didn't witness it himself. Um, there was uh, um, a doctor who this book is partially about, this uh, red sulfur. His name was Helvetius, and he had done the transmutation, but not basically himself. He said an alchemist came to him and left some red sulfur behind, and then he put this... Uh, he said it was as big as a mustard seed. He put this in onto lead, and the lead began to boil, and then it turned into gold. And so uh, my my story is about this alchemist who brings the red sulfur to Helvetius. And so Helvetius, um, and to his credit, he knew that he would be vilified because um, alchemy was already in decline. In 1666, it had gone over its high point in the 16th century, like in um, like 1550, that, that, that's the time of um, Paracelsus, it was at its height, and then it started to go into decline. So to call himself an alchemist was already, and to say he believed in the transmutation from lead into gold, rationalism had already come up, um, re- made him realize that he would lose his position. And his position was very important because he was the physician to the Prince of Orange, who was the leader of the country. And um, But he did it anyway. And so Spinoza went to the goldsmith who did all the assays, and he verified with the goldsmith that these assays were done correctly, that the goldsmith, and the interesting thing was, um, when the goldsmith, um, what what Helvetius did um, according to the alchemist that brought in the gold, the, that brought in the red sulfur, he used too much red sulfur in the transmutation process. So the gold that he had was still active. And so when they added silver to the gold for the assay, uh, when they added silver to the gold and, um, and then they um, took the silver out again, which is the assay process, they found that the weight of the gold had increased so that some of the silver had been transmuted into gold. That is what um, what uh, Spinoza checked, and that is was checked as a fact. And so that is impossible to explain. And you also indicate that Robert Boyle himself made some observations of was it this incident or a similar incident yes several several incidents um and he his observations were that that people actually came to him and did this transmutation process now robert boyle was not a fool um we call him the father of chemistry um and um he was convinced that they were actually able to transmute lead into gold and so was um so was isaac newton isaac newton was a big alchemist and um he um he worked much of his life on alchemy much more on alchemy than on physics um and uh yeah so these people were completely convinced that it was possible. And and these people were convinced that it was possible and they were the genius of their age, right? And so we are sitting here 400 years later saying, no, that's not possible. The, the, the geniuses of their age believed that it was possible. So that's what activated me to write a novel about it because we have to look at this. I wonder what you think of William Blake's poem in which he says something to the effect of we should be protected from Newton's sleep. He he didn't regard Newton as a spiritually evolved person. 
Yes, also because he um, he left behind Newton left behind in his physics. Um, he left behind the notion of that everything's alive, that everything carries spirit, that the sunrise is a spiritual event, as it is for Blake. Right. Blake talks about the sunrise as an emergence of spirit. And so that in his uh, in his work on physics uh, and his work on calculus, which all this work was in his youth. Right. He did all this this stuff in his youth. He did in his later age. He started to become more of an alchemist. Um, the book Red Sulphur talks about how Newton became an alchemist. Um, and uh, so the. The notion of that um, uh, there is a split between spirit and matter, that notion came very much in um, in physics. And so that is the sleep that Blake would like us to wake up from. We should wake up from the notion that there that there is matter and there is spirit. It's all one being, one presence, one great living presence that we all participate in. The 16th and 17th centuries about which you write were the, the centuries in which science really got established Seriously, the yes. Royal Scientific Society was founded at that time. And of course, Boyle and Newton were uh, amongst the founders. But the, the whole culture was struggling with this idea of how do we reconcile the, the divergent opinions of science and, and religion? You had the Council of Trent debating this this as well. And I think at some point, uh, society seemed to suggest or move in the direction of, well, scientists, it's okay if scientists look into the, the physical world only, and, and anything associated with the inner realm of consciousness is really the domain of the church. Yeah, well, what was happening, the, the big cataclysm, of course, came in 1600, when uh, Galileo, through his telescope, so through technology, demonstrated that the Earth is going around the sun. Uh, this was already um, put a 100 years earlier by Copernicus, but Copernicus' uh, notion was um, theoretical. And so, in theory, all this was fine, and you were allowed to say that that the uh, that the uh, Earth was moving around the sun as a theory, as a theory. But um, but Galileo said, no, 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 this is not a theory. This is actuality, and that was went too far for the church, and that's why they banished him. And so um, Galileo was focusing on. What is happening outside of us? If we are not looking, what is actually happening? If we are not looking, the earth is still moving around the sun, whether we look or not. And so that became, and that's why his followers became the scientists. The scientists, the, 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 the ones of, of knowledge, the scientists were the ones who were then beginning to say there is something out there that has nothing to do with us that is 
an, it's objective and we can look at it objectively. We can be the subjects that look at the objects. And that was an incredible struggle. And it was a struggle that, um, and I described that in my book, it was the struggle between Catholicism and Protestantism as well. So there were wars fought over this um, because uh, the church would not allow science anymore. And, um, and then the, the Protestant countries, like, for instance, England and Holland, um, science became the haven. They became havens for science, and that's why the, um, the Royal Society was so important. Um, because uh, in, 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 in among the Protestants, it was fine to study matter. It was fine to study all that and go against, uh, go against what the church believed in. Um, so it was a huge upheaval that was with wars that never ended. And But one of the things was about the birth of science. These wars were also fought for the birth of science. And as a matter of fact, I think science evolved in order to contribute to the wars, to develop more effective cannons. And <laughs> yes, absolutely. And... Um, and that was already um, implied in Newton's, uh, Newton's calculus made a lot of things possible. They say that Leibniz was the one who discovered it, but um, but the calculus made a lot of po things possible because they could now see the trajectory of a of a cannonball, and so um, and alchemy had already. Um, uh, given gunpowder uh, to uh, society. You know that in China, gunpowder was developed about a thousand years earlier, but they only used it for fireworks. But in the West, of course, we started to use it immediately for warfare. And um, uh, so, yes, um, uh, alchemy and science became really important for these wars. And and they created the and and they created the, the industrial revolution, of course, with the invention of the steam engine. You write about, as I recall, how various alchemical processes resulted in, I think, graphite, which was used in the uh, uh, polishing of of cannonballs, so that they could go further yes. and, and more accurately. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's part of it. The interesting thing is. Um, that um, what we call um, what what we call graphite um, is uh, also called plumbago, and uh, for the alchemists it was something else than graphite. They also discovered graphite and how it worked with cannonballs, and but they were interested in the fact that uh, th there was the notion that uh, um, silver was. Uh, extracted from lead. So you could make silver from lead. And as you extracted more and more silver from lead, the, um, the lead would become heavier and denser and darker. And then in the end, you would be left over with what was called plumbago, which um, is also the word for graphite. But in alchemy, it was this very dense um, when all the spirit had left the uh, left the material, what is left is plumbago. And my story is about what happens to the plumbago, what happens to this completely dispirited entity that is, of course, also alive, but completely dispirited and wants to get back the spirit. And so the 
much of the story is how this character, who's called um, Mantis, this character who's made in the plumbago, is constantly desiring red sulfur because he's completely dispirited. So that is plumbago. It's also graphite. And and this character in your novel is a, a demonic figure who really drives the action of most of your novel. Yes, uh, because um, he is so much after the red sulfur because his notion is, I want it, I want it, I want it. He's this craving, like what we have with addiction. Uh, so it's the, he's a, a, and has this addictive craving for red sulfur and will do anything to get it. And the alchemists have to protect from it because they know that if this spirit gets hold of the red sulfur and gets to eat it and take it in, then this demon will take over the universe and will reset the universe according to its wishes. It's a, a little bit like Marvel Comics. Um, and so, um, so they constantly have to protect themselves from this demon that will go and wants this red sulfur that they want to use for, and they are using um, as a panacea against the plague, because there was a plague going on, like it's going on today with us. Um, and in that in that plague, the panacea was used, and um, uh, and so that's a, a very in, integral part of the story. Well, your story also suggests that in the world of of the alchemists, such things as uh, demonic intervention and demonic possession and uh, supernatural interventions of that sort are uh, considered more or less matter of fact. Yes, they they um, they would be talking to salamanders and they would be talking to. Um, all these uh, characters that we see in Harry Potter, and they would just communicate with them in a much easier way. You have to see, of course, that they were working with lead and with mercury, so they were probably constantly in a state of lead and mercury poisoning, so that is, uh, the imagination would be very powerful. Um, but there was no distinction between what I call the embodied imagination, the way the imagination presents itself as body, and the physical body. Um, that all was mixed together. And so um, it was a, a mixed universe. It's similar to the mixed universe that we're moving into right now with the mixture between virtuality and actuality. In, indeed. Well, you've spent a great deal of your professional life working with dreams, as I recall. Dreams are pretty much central to depth psychology. How did the alchemists regard dreams? I don't think they would um, make a lot of distinction between um, dreaming, uh, uh, dreaming uh, discoveries and waking discoveries. I think they would go on in with things that they found in their dreams and would try it in their laboratories. There was much more interaction. That's what I'm trying to do now. I work with, um, I work with theoretical physicists and with biologists. I'm trying to bring that back that actually there is a lot of, um, a lot of knowledge in dreams where the perspective can shift, where you see a problem differently and start looking and working with it differently. But we have thrown dreams out. 
I, I worked with maybe 40 to 50,000 dreams. So dreams have been central to my life and I've spent a lot of time in that dream world. And um, there is an enormous amount of information, very much creative imagination in dreaming that we don't access. We just leave it out there. And we spend hours every night dreaming and we just leave that out there. We just put it on the garbage pile. Dreaming has a lot of value to it because it has a lot of power in it and a lot of information that we can only access that way. Well, I can personally attest that my life has been changed in in dramatic ways by dreams, Mm -hmm. but maybe only just a few dreams, maybe two or three of the dreams I've had in my life were life-changing. And indeed, they really were. But I gather that really the message of your work is this idea of participatory science that uh, yes. we could institute a new alchemy if if we could recapture that vision yes and um we we can do that by way of um letting our dreams inform us again and that is not literal it is not that if um, a theoretical physicist work, works on black holes, they will certain, suddenly dream about something about the black hole. No, it is that as we work on dreams, my, my, my notion of, of the work on dreams is that you try to get out of the narrative. The narrative is always to- told to you by what I call habitual consciousness. Habitual consciousness is very important. I mean, you can't drive your car without habitual consciousness. You can't, um, you can't cross the street without habitual consciousness. Habitual consciousness is very important. It's also your limitation because it's your habits of consciousness. So what my work has been is to get people out of their habits of consciousness into other perspectives. And you can do that very easily with dreams because you can move into the perspective of something that is a non-self entity that presents itself in dreaming and through techniques of of, um, mimicry, mimesis, of acting techniques, um, we're able to get into the perspective of this this non-self character. And then uh, as we then go into a process of identification, which is one of the fundamental processes that we're capable of identification, I think that an infant learns mainly by way of identification and mimicry. Um, as we move into that process of identification and get into the other character, then you get a perspective shift. And this perspective shift then gives you a completely new set of information. Because what happens in habitual consciousness, of course, is redundance. Everything becomes a repetition and a repetition and a repetition. And so nothing new, nothing much new happens. That's why I think also people complain as they get older uh, that life is going so fast. I think that that has to do with the fact that you get more and more ensconced in habitual consciousness and therefore nothing new happens and then life seems to go faster. So if you can move out of habitual consciousness into non-habitual states and experience the world in a non-habitual perspective, time changes, everything begins to change and therefore your observation changes, the way you look through a microscope or the way you look through a telescope changes, everything changes and because we are now creating and I am an incredible fan of it. Uh, the 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 web, 
space telescope. I think it's absolutely amazing. So we're looking deeper and deeper into space. We're looking deeper and deeper into time, but we're not changing the consciousness that is doing the looking. And therefore, we spend all this fortune, these billions of dollars on changing our apparatus, but we're not changing this apparatus. We're not changing the apparatus that does the looking, the apparatus that does the understanding, because that apparatus is completely fixed in materialism. It's completely fixed in a particular set of thoughts. And so I think that if we can get access to non-habitual states, I think we're will do very well. And I'm under the impression that Jung's study of alchemy uh, gives us a very uh, extensive and detailed mapping of, of the kind of transformations that are possible. Uh, Jung, and especially uh, the work of James Hillman, that you, who you were just mentioning, he was my training analyst, and he, his work on alchemy, I think, is... Um, uh, his work is called Alchemical Psychology. Um, that, to me, is the most advanced um, work on alchemy that I have seen. Because Jung is very much in a notion of uh, polarities, polar opposites. And uh, Hillman is much more in a state of multiplicity. There are many different um, uh, nodal points. It's not just two that are opposed. It's a network of nodal points. And of course, network psychology is where, where we're at at the moment. So Hillman is much more contemporary in that way. Well, Robert Bosnack, this has been an informative and enlightening discussion. I want to thank you very much for being with me today. I look forward to the possibility of having future discussions with you about related to alchemy and depth psychology and dreaming. Very good. Thank you so much for having me, Jeffrey. It's been a great pleasure. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us.